made it through the first service. We'll see if we can get through the second one. <clears throat> Hopefully it will soften up here a little bit. Uh, on Christmas Day, we had our kids over. <clears throat> and uh, normally we read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. We were at Andy's place. and and uh, But I, on my inbox, <clears throat> I had a, a list of the top five toys ever. And... Um, so I had my grandkids choose, trying to tell me what are the top five toys of all time. And one of them goes, Infinity, you know, if some of you know that name, if you know that, um, and various things. But let me give you the top five of all time. Number one, a stick. Number two, a string. Number three, a box. Number four, a cardboard tube. Relate to that. And number five, dirt. <laughs> How's that for toys? And uh, the blog was advocating some simplicity in our lives. And I think it's so fit um, with this, with our culture and where uh, at times you need to unplug the things in our lives to, to slow down a bit. We want to start a new series today. And the title of it is, Your God Too Small. But to begin with, I want to read you a quote. The author is J.B. Phillips. He was the one that years ago wrote the New Testament, Good News for Modern Men. And he's a writer. I've been doing some research on this topic. But look at what he said here. Many men and women are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish, or as the old-fashioned would say, godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect, and consequently, their willing cooperation. The word God, when it's thrown into a conversation these days, if you stop and ponder and listen, at times that word really is irrelevant unless it's in the form of of swearing or some kind of vocabulary or type of profanity. See, the culture, God really is irrelevant. He's no longer useful. Humanity and science have passed him by. And the trend of that is increasing. And it's not that there's so many that are antagonistic and atheists in that sense. It's just that God isn't necessary anymore in people's lives. So why this series? And why do I want to go down that path? And and there's a couple of reasons. And one of them, over the years, I've wanted to do this uh, for, for a number of years Uh, I could put it maybe four, five, six at least, even before I came here. But but it's something that has really come out of working with marriages and families. For me, that has become so important because what I tend to find is that people that are struggling in marriages and families, oftentimes they are struggling with understanding of who God is. This idea that what we believe about God impacts 
our relationships profoundly. The way we relate to others, the way we treat others, the way we forgive others, and even you understand the way that we just live our lives, and especially when hard times and rough times come. See, our beliefs about God, our perceptions of God, are really connected to the minutia of behavior and the way that we oftentimes are not even aware of it. But let me give you the first purpose there on the screen for your notes. We must recognize that what we believe and have learned about God impacts the way we live our lives in relationship with each other. Now I want to dig around this just for, for a few minutes. And every one of us in here have an understanding when I use that word God. Now the question is, is it accurate? Now one of the pieces that I did in, in, in digging here in this topic was I ended up reading a research paper of a, of a study that a guy was trying to look at children in various ages and to track their understanding of, of God as they got older. And it was fascinating because the research pointed out pretty strongly that a child's understanding of who God is is already rooted to, to a great degree less than six years of age. Already by six years of age, they have these mental perceptions of who God is. Now the interesting thing in the study that it pointed out is that he found out that even children who were growing up in homes that had no exposure to God, they also had a perception of who God was. And as I read that, I just immediately I go, okay, that's Romans 1. And let me put it on the screen here, where it talks about the wrath of God as being revealed against godlessness and wickedness. Look at verse 19. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood, so that people are without excuse. See, before six years of age, something is going on in terms of the size of the children that shaping that they're saying something is eternal. There's something beyond the self. There's something transcendent. They don't know that word, but they know that there's this something out there. And you realize when you study different cultures, every culture has the same the issue. But the research also pointed out that the development of, the, of, of what, who God is and the image of God is shaped deeply by the environment that you grow up in. And, and in this particular study, for example, he went and studied Mormon children. And Mormon children developed a very, what's called the term, anthropomorphic understanding of God. It, it's basically this. It was a very kind of finite God. God had actions and limitations and lived in a particular place. And when they went and studied Jewish children, it was different. For Jewish children, they had a more transcendent, a theocentric understanding of who God was. 
He was more out there. He was bigger. He wasn't so tangible like a Mormon family. And when they studied Roman Catholic families and children, when they would, one of the things he did was had young kids draw a concept of God. And in, in, the, in Catholic families, the interesting thing was the kids would attach symbols to their understanding of God. And you understand the tradition then that was, they were attaching God with some of the traditions of that faith. But the research implied that this concept of God is influenced by your family profoundly. But to put it bluntly here, I need to stop for a little drink of water here. There's another piece that's shaped as well. And that other piece that is shaped within the family is the conscience. But the conscience is also trained within families, and it's connected then to who God is. And it shapes where guilt comes from, that conscience shapes, where shame comes in, and it's trained at a very young age and, and with the perception of God. But, but this is where I think we need to realize. what We learn even as young children, and we go through adolescence and post-adolescence, and we, we can bring some of those concepts of God all the way over into our adult world. And it's a challenge for us and how we live. But here's where I need to stop. And, and parents, here's the tension for you. If you infuse a poor image of God and you blend it with kind of a moralism and legalism, it is going to shape your children well into adulthood. And and let me give you some examples of this. We're a hunting culture up here. If you take a child, start them hunting at a young age, and you teach them what a real sportsman is like. And one of the ethics of a real sportsman is this. You never shoot a bird that's sitting on the ground. Isn't that correct? That's good ethics in terms of hunting. Now some of you are laughing because you maybe don't have that ethic. I don't know. But understand, for a child, if they've been taught that, for them... If they accidentally shoot a bird on the ground, guess what's going to happen? Guilt and shame. It's going to flow in their minds. But just think a moment. A bird on the ground, but a bird flies up 20 yards beyond the barrel, and they hit it. It's not shame, it's exhilaration. It's I did it. I got it. Do you see the ethics are being trained even at a young age and they linger in our mind through adulthood. So there's this reality even that, that we learn truth. One, one illustration I didn't give in the first service, but think of Nazi Germany. 
and the warped minds of what was going on. Deanna and I have had the opportunity to go to Auschwitz in Poland. And you walk through this camp and you see the, the, the places where they burn the bodies, where they would shoot some sometime. And we went down to this area where there was hair in these big bins of, of, of where they stored, where they shaved the people's heads before they killed them and burned them. And they used the hair as insulation in the coats of the soldiers to keep them warm in the wintertime. And they took the bones and they actually used it for making roads. And you realize that you go, what took that? But understand, the ethics of that country was being shaped by the ideas that were thrown out there. And many of those men and women believed that they were actually following God in killing the Jews. And you go, how could that be? See, the reality is, our settings, what we've learned, and even for you parents that are parents, if you teach kind of a moral behaviorism and where you connect just to who God is. And if, if, if sin just disconnects us from God and God becomes a moral cop, do you understand how it's going to shape a child that's very young? But these conceptions of who God is start at a very young age it can linger on our minds for so long. But our morals, our ethics are shaped by our view of God. And what if our view of God is too small? I don't know if you've ever had an ethics class in college. One of the one realizes that the morals of life can be shaped by words, by ideas, as it penetrates the hearts of people, especially when they make sense. But the question is, who gets the right to decide really what is good and what is evil? Let me show you a quote from Phillips here that I came across. Look at what he says. For without God, no one has any authority to advance in support of his ideas of right except his own moral sense. Unless there is a God whom right and wrong can be reliably assessed, moral judgments can be no more than opinion, influenced by upbringing, training, and propaganda. You, you catch what he's saying there. If we follow a too small God, if one follows a God whose view is not accurate and not biblical, the self will determine the course of morals, ethics, and the direction of life. See, our theology really is never created in a vacuum. There's influences on what we believe about God. Let me just give you one example, illustration that I, I've used, that maybe I don't know if I've used it here before, but I was teaching a men's class years ago. And we were talking about how we treat our, our wives. And I remember talking about, the discussion was centered around, is it okay to yell at your wife? And the interesting thing, one guy piped up in this class, it was probably 30, 40 guys, and he goes, 
course it's okay. Everybody does it. And, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, no, that's not true. And I, I think maybe I embarrassed him a bit. But I wager to say that when he went, if you go back to his parents and what shaped his ethics of what is appropriate in a marriage is that he was influenced by his, probably his father and what was acceptable. See, for him, it was no big deal. And I guarantee you that his concept of God was connected to that deeply as to what is okay and what's not okay. Um, I got to know him pretty well. I knew him over the years. Um, He ended up in a divorce, which is sad. But before I go to a second purpose, I just want to let you know that as we jump into this study, this is not a study on the attributes of God. It's not going to be an intellectual study where we just kind of, okay, this God, who is he in terms of sovereignty and some of those things. But here's kind of where we're going to go down this path. And just for your notes there, it's just kind of a tease kind of, of weeks ahead. Your God is too small if you believe that God is stingy. Your God is too small if you believe that God is a moral cop. If that's your understanding of God. Your God's too small if you believe that God is just a great morality judge. He's sitting behind a bench somewhere with a big gavel that just throws it down. That's who God is. Your God's too small if you believe that God is a harsh teacher. Your God's too small if you believe that God is a fear-inducing father. Your God's too small if you believe God is just the grand old man, the man upstairs. Your God's too small if you believe that he's a God of absolute perfectionism. Now, explain, he is perfect. But it's the way we relate to us on that one. Another one, your God is too small if you believe that God is the ultimate repairman. That the reason you come to God is to get fixed. To get rid of some of the hard things in life. And the last one, your God's too small if you believe that God is the doorman for security. And that's why you approach him only. There might even be a few more in there. But you see, your response to how you live your life is impacted by what you believe. And if you believe one of these or you might have a number of these that you've bought into. It's going to shape you. And you think we recognize that, do we have a perfect view of God? The answer is no. We all think we do. I think all of us, if you if we kind of push this up, well, I think I have the right view of God. But what if we get to heaven and he, and he says, Ken, your view of God is wrong. Hold out your hands. I'm going to slap you with a ruler. No. See, is that the way we view God? There's another purpose. And for this, I need to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2. It's a text I covered a couple years ago, but there's a component here that I want to draw out. And 1 John 2, look how it reads. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now almost all scholars would say this. This is not talking about physical age. When it says children, young men, fathers, this is not age. This is spiritual categories. And they also would, would agree that this is kind of metaphoric in the sense that this is not just about men. So you would add young men, young women, father and mother in the faith. But if you, if you dig just a little bit, you'll notice right away there that for children... And I don't have anything to write down there, but it says your sins have been forgiven and you're known by Jesus. You're known by the Father. You're in his family. And that's kind of it for a child in their faith. But look at verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. That word know is really a quite really a deep word, but it's it's not knowledge. The Greek word is gnashko, to know, but it's to, to perceive, to become known relationally, to understand another. And it's actually this. It can be used as a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. To become acquainted with. There's this intimacy, there's a relationalness to it. So it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's a relational term. If Deanna was here, I'd look and go, I know my wife relationally. That's what it's talking about there. But the fact that John uses this word for father implies that there's this stage of development where there's deeper understanding. There's more, and there's a, there's a breath of, of richness to this relationship that goes on just beyond intellectual knowledge. Now, in fairness, when it, when it says, I know the children as well, it's the same word there. But you notice that there's a qualifier on the adult one. They know him, and the qualifier is this, who is from the beginning. What's John saying there? He's emphasizing something beyond just this, uh, the beginning relationship of a child. There's more experiential, there's more relational, there's more intellectual. There's an understanding of who God is in terms of his plan, in terms of his personhood. Now, interesting as well, on that the him there, when they, and they wonder, okay, him, Many people think that's actually Christ as well that could be put there. But here's the purpose where I think it's so important. Number two for this series, a correct view of God is necessary for the development of a mature faith and a deeper relationship with Christ. See, if one doesn't care about knowing God, That person is basically saying, I will remain an infant for the rest of my life. See, this is a challenge where if we're going to know God, does it take some work? The answer is yes. 
but it has impact for us. Because if we don't have a correct view of God, I will guarantee you that your faith is going to be influencing the way you raise your children. It's going to influence the way you relate to people at work. It's going to impact you the way you relate with a spouse, with friends, with Jesus. Even the way you perceive yourself, it's going to impact. And it's going to, it impacts us when hard times come in our lives. It shapes our response deeply. But let me point out something that I used as an example on Wednesday night at the Christmas Eve service. Look at Job 1.18. See, Job knew God, and it bore fruit when life became hard. Look at what it reads. When he was speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Do you catch the news that they come to Job? Your children have been killed. The house collapsed on them. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and he tore his robe. Tearing your robe is a sign of, of, of grief. And he shaved his head. And look at his response. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. See, how could Job come to that place, hear that news, and, and respond in worship? And I believe it's this, because he knew the God from the very beginning. Let me give you a reminder, application for your notes. And I think this would have been Job. One must go through the journey of becoming a young man and woman in faith in order to move to fatherhood or motherhood. See, the goal is to become a father and mother in this rich, delightful relationship with the Father. But in order to get there, we start as infants when we come to faith, and there's this movement, but we have to go through a young man and a young woman in order to get there. And I think too often people believe that they can get from infancy to fathers and mothers in the faith, and they don't have to do any work. Just show up for church once in a while. But I understand this, you cannot bypass a young man, a young woman in faith. But do you notice the qualities? Look at verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Repeats that again. See, three qualities there for a young man, young woman. And this isn't spiritual strength, that first one's strength. It's spiritual, it's not physical. But what does that mean? It includes stability, wisdom, not wavering when hard things come, 
when circumstances change. That's being strong. But the next one, where does that strength come from? And I'm convinced convinced it's this. The word of God abides in you. It's here where we must get. This is so important. Because we cannot and will never develop a healthy view of God if if we're not spending time in this book. One will always plateau if there's no spirit changing our values, our ethics, drawing to himself. God uses the word to change us and move us along. But you notice that third quality as well. The evil one. There's this understanding where they figured out what sin is and some of the temptation stuff and how the schemes of Satan are going on and the forces of an evil world. And and you see, there's this place where they kind of get it when they look out into the world. But maybe the challenge then for us is if you're going to get there, if we're going to be strong, it starts with this. And here's the challenge for you. If you've never read your Bible through in a year, I would challenge you to do it. There are lots of reading plans out there. You can buy a chronological Bible. You can do lots of things and just look up on the internet, reading plan for Bible, and you can run something off. But I would challenge you at the very minimum, read this book through in 2015. It'll make a difference. But let me throw you another challenge. Maybe to go beyond in your understanding of God, maybe you need to read some things that are pushing you. Making God bigger. And a couple suggestions if you want to write a couple down. One of them that I just read here about a year ago, that I just, it's such a good book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves. But it's a book that just talks about the triune God and understanding what Father, Son, and Spirit mean. Another one I've suggested to some others here is called Birthright. <coughs> Author's name is David Needham. It talks about what it means to be birthed into the family of God and into Christ. A little heavier, but well worth it. But maybe you need to, maybe you're one that don't like to read. Guess what? There's lots of books on audio. And the Bible's on audio. Get it and download it on your on your iPad or iPhone and put it in and listen to it while you're driving. It will bear fruit in the long run as well. But did you catch something here? When you talk about this young man, young woman, there's something that I gotta state here. We talk about The Word of God lives in us. We're strong. We're figuring out sin. Most people want to go, that's what maturity is about. And here's the reality. It's only the middle. you got to become a father and mother to get to that last stage. See, in that father and mother, it's you know him from the beginning. But even by using the word father there, It implies children. 
That that person is looking back and has a lifestyle of looking after others, helping others be birthed by the the Holy Spirit into into the kingdom. There's this other-centeredness that takes place as it with a father and mother that's looking to develop children in their faith and young men and women in their faith. But folks, that's where the goal needs to be. But we come back to, if our view of God is too small, it shapes so, so much at our parenting, our relationships, our spiritual maturity. And so over the next number number of months, we're going to be digging in. And the goal will be that we would come out on the other, the other end with a, a bigger God, and that God would change us as part of that process. Let's stand and pray. Father, <clears throat> you want to know us 